Welcome to another episode of Chasing Majors. I'm golf journalist Evan Priest, and in the last series of Chasing Majors, we were joined by the legendary caddy Steve Williams, and we dive deep into his partnership with Tiger Woods. But in this episode, I'll sit down with New Zealand golfer Michael Campbell and his former caddy Mike Sponge Waite to explore Cambo's historic 2005 US Open victory at Pinehurst. Cambo was reluctant, but he was convinced by his manager and his wife to go through US Open qualifying where he lived in England, but only because the course was right near his house. Not only did Cambo make it through, he successfully fought off Tiger Woods on a major championship Sunday to become the first ever Māori New Zealander to win a major. Right, Michael Campbell and, and Sponge, thank you for joining me on, on uh, Chasing Majors. We're going to go through your partnership together. We're going to go through the 2005 US Open and we're going to go through Michael Campbell in general. So guys, thanks for joining me on, on different parts of Europe. So thanks for tuning in. And, and what's it like for you guys to catch up with each other? You might not have seen each other in a couple of years. And is it nice to see see each other? Yeah, obviously, from my point of view, you know, he's been a big part of my, my success, Sponge. You know, we've had, uh, I think, uh, 10 or 12 wins together, including, obviously, the US Open and, and the World Match Play. So we have a great relationship. I think it's important that the chemistry is there for a player and a caddy. And um, I haven't seen Sponge for a long time. I'm, I see he's out there still caddying for a young kid, Mateus, which is great. Um <laughs> You know, his, his knowledge of the game is fantastic. And as I said before, it's important to have a nice chemistry, chemistry between the player and the caddy. But uh, I see that you have uh, haven't lost much weight there, Sponge. Uh, you've uh, <laughs> still got a bit of, bit of uh, a spare tie around, you, around your waist there, my friend. What's going on? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yes, I've actually I've, I've had a little bit of trouble the last few weeks with my knees. So I think the problem is, yes, a little muscle above them. So I'm actually making an attempt attempt to shed a few kilos. Anyone that knows me, I've got to cut down on my magnum intake. (laughs) (laughs) The magnums are pretty good. Sponge, how did you get the nickname Sponge? Every caddy usually has a nickname. How did you get yours? Yeah, when I I first started caddying, it was actually my first week um, in Europe in 1987, and I was caddying for Radar, Wayne Riley. Oh, right. He's here this week. Yeah. And uh, we were having a practice round, and when I was younger, my hair was a lot longer, and it was like an Afro head, and I was wearing a visor, and it was pouring down with rain, and my head got to saturation point, and it was Ian Roberts, um, Australian pro, who said, because the, the water started running down my face, and he said, look at you, your head's like a sponge, and it stuck. <laughs> Unbelievable that something like that can stick. But back in those days, um, any little slip-up or any little different thing that would happen, you, you'd get that nickname, and it would last for, for life. So, so tell me about the origins of your relationship. When did you guys first link up? What was your first event together, and, and what was it like? Did you, did you become friends, and was the chemistry quite quick? Well, um, 
I'll, I'll tell you my side of the story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget catching a playing sponge. You remember this, don't you? Uh, from Europe, we were playing the European tour, and Sponge was working with um, a particular player from Australia. I won't say his name. <laughs> and <laughs> and we're on a flight together, sitting, sitting together, and uh, we had a few drinks on the flight and just having a chat. And Sponge was uh, not happy with his player and because of this and that and that sort of stuff. And, and I said, well, what are you doing with them for? If you're not enjoying out there catting for the, your player, maybe give me a go. And then we hooked up, I think, in, um, when was it, Sponge? 99, I think? 99 or 98? Yeah, the beginning, the beginning of 99 we started up. Yeah. So we, uh, yeah, we got on great together. Um, I think it's important, as I said before, early on in the podcast, that it's, uh, chemistry is most important. Mm. Uh, we seem to bounce off each other very well. Um, it's a, the biggest job for a caddy, I think, is to understand the player and how, how they function, how the caddy can, because um, you are a team together out there playing, can uh, say the right things at the right time. And uh, Sponge did that for me on many occasions, didn't you, mate? It was it was good. Um, besides a few bad club selections, but uh, besides that, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, now, we... Um, we worked very well together. Um, we grew as, I think, uh, as more of a um, <clears throat> partnership between us. You know, uh, we, uh, our wives knew each other. Uh, we had this uh, incredible bond and um, we had a lot of success together. So uh, it's a combination of just having the right personalities glued together um, for that relationship to, to shine and it, it I mean, you see on TV right now all the caddies and players. It, it goes beyond just carrying the bag, you know. If you think about it, you're together for like 10, 12 hours a day. Yeah. And, and that's a long time, you know, and so it's important to get on. And we we got on great together, so that's part of the chemistry, I think. What about you, Sponge? Did you um, Is that how you recall it? And, 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 and how nice was it to caddy for someone who you developed a friendship with quickly? Yes, I knew Cambo well, pretty much from when he, he first came over to the European tour because I'd started out in, in 88 um, and all the Australians and Kiwis, players and caddies, we all used to live um, in an area uh, near near Wentworth and Sunningdale, um, Bagshot, and actually a local the local pub there in Windlesham, the Half Moon, um, was like uh, Roger Davis introduced me to uh, Conrad and Helga who owned the pub there and it was like the local um, meeting place on Sunday and Monday nights and um, as it turned out um, they were the biggest importer of VB beer in the UK in, <laughs> in the 90s because we all used to congregate there um, you know on, on weeks off and especially Sunday and Monday nights and then all the locals uh, cottoned on and um, it was it was just a lovely lovely way to get away from from the golf and and it was like one big one big family of all the Kiwis and Aussies. So, what was do you do you remember the first victory that you guys had together? Yeah, I, I remember it was it was the nineteen ninety nine Johnny Walker Classic at Tashi Country Club because I remember <laughs> the name because after the tournament, Cambo had a jet ski and he gave I always wanted a jet ski so he gave me the jet ski and I named it Tashi. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> Tashi. That's fantastic. 
All right, Cambo, I want, I want to focus on you just for, for a few minutes here and just your childhood and, and how you got into golf. Um, I believe you grew up in Wellington. I believe you grew up paying, playing at Pada Pada Umu Beach, which famously produced Steve Williams as a caddy and also Cam Smith's caddy, Sam Pinfold. Um, what, what was it like growing up in that area of New Zealand? How prevalent was golf? And when did you sort of come into the game? Well, I think uh, I speak for a lot of New Zealanders that every boy's dream is to be an All Black uh, that was mine at the age of five years old. And I uh, played rugby for like seven, eight years. I knew it wasn't good enough, big enough, strong enough, fast enough. <laughs> so I decided <laughs> to play other sports. I played um, jeepers. I played softball. I played uh, rugby, tennis and golf, um, badminton, squash, everything. I was very uh, outdoors all the time playing the ball. So and, and golf was... One of my passions, very young, and uh, I grew up playing on a on a farm. Nine-hole farm had sheep everywhere, fences around the greens. Wow! Uh, very very humble beginnings. I used to <laughs> uh, only have only have one. Uh, I actually started playing left-handed because my father was left-handed, so he chopped down a, a six-iron for me. So the first year or so, I was playing one club left-handed, and I used to collect uh, dried-up sheep shit to tear the ball up. <laughs> so, <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. And then I swapped over to right-handed um, when I was about 10 years old. And I wasn't, you know, at age of 13, for example, my handicap was 33. So wow. I wasn't great young. Uh, but, you know, I had a great, I uh, had a, a growth spurt in the age of 15, 16, I was scratch. So I developed very quickly, improved very quickly. And mm-hmm. that's how I started through my, my father. I used to caddy for him. And um, yeah, that's that's how it all started for me back in those days, and uh, it's uh, it's quite a funny story, you know, uh, to have the opportunity or to do what I've done in my career and start from where I began. And it was uh, it's always a nice story to tell. Yeah, so some of the best players in the, in the world have these amazing humble stories about how they grew up playing the game. Tony Finau and Jonathan Vegas players like that, but. So, so your father, I, I believe he was a single-figure handicapper. He was, he was quite a good golfer. Um, what was the name of the golf course, that nine-hole that was enclosed by sheep fences and whatnot? Um, yeah, it was Titahi Bay Golf Club, which is about 20 minutes north of uh, Wellington. Okay. Uh, yeah, so that's where it all began for me. And uh, he used to get me up at, you know, 7.30 in the morning and caddy for him. And <laughs> my reward was a, a meat pie and a milkshake. So that was... <laughs> <laughs> Always my highlight, but um, yeah, just one day I picked up the golf club and it was it. End of story. You know, I love the game since then. So, but I've always been a uh, goal goal setter. Now, you know, I used to say to my father, "If I break a hundred, can you buy me a half set of golf clubs? You know, if I break ninety, can you buy me a new putter or second hand putter?" Um, so to, to play golf back in the eighties then was quite tough because. Not many Maoris um, play golf. Yeah, they do now. But uh, back in the eighties and you know late seventies, it was unheard of to the point where I never told my friends at school I played golf because it's so uncool. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't tell anybody until one day um, the school trip we had a school trip to the golf course and there's like two busloads went there. Yep. So. Um, it was the toughest 15 minutes ride from my school to the, to the golf course because I was thinking, what should I do? Should I pretend not to play or should I hit the ball how I hit it? <laughs> and so I decided to, you know, 
Two few balls, and then I was scratched in at 15 years old. And um, everyone, all my mates and all the people around me were like completely amazed. So that's where it all changed for me. That uh, it has got a stigma of, mm. of it being, you know, upper class and it's, it's very expensive to play, which is very, very expensive to play. But um, I, just, I thought I broke the mold by doing that and um, been the first Maori to win a, a major uh, championship. There's a huge privilege to me, and and I, I feel I'll feel very humbled by that. But also, hopefully, it'll inspire more young New Zealand golfers or Maori golfers to play play the game. So that's my why. You know, people ask what's your why, and my why was to prove to the world that Maoris can play golf. So, well, mate, you, you certainly did that. You put yourself on the world stage, and and we'll certainly get to that, and we'll, we'll get to the impact that hopefully you had on the Maori community in New Zealand and, and whether you changed the perception of golf because that would be you know, amazing to discuss that with you further down the track of this episode. So you turned pro in 1993, you played on the European Tour. What was it like for, for someone from New Zealand going so far across the other side of the planet and, and trying to play the game that he, he loved? Was it, was it daunting at first? What were your impressions of your first few years as a pro? Well, very daunting because uh, I didn't leave the country really until I was 21, 22. Uh, I made the New Zealand teams, amateur teams, which means got to go through, go to Australia and play Asia. Yep. But to fly 12,000 miles away uh, from your homeland was very, very daunting. I remember sitting in that plane thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> but, you know, I think you need to be uncomfortable. Um, mm. I think, I think uh, adversity like that is, is a signal for growth. And uh, I remember jumping on that plane thinking, I was crying. I was in tears, thinking, "What am I doing here? Am I doing the right thing?" And yes, I was, you know, surrounded by people who loved me and supported me, my family and friends. But there's a lot of people out there too. At that time, um, thought I was crazy, and um, to to think about having a career as a professional golfer, you know, back in the early '90s was, and you know, being a Maori was, uh, um, what can I say? It was it was tough mentally to block those things out, but. For me, it was more of a motivation to, to prove, prove people that uh, they're wrong. You know, anything's possible. If you have a tall dream or dreams, you know, it's, it's easy to exceed, uh, uh, you can easily achieve those dreams just through just self-belief, work ethic, attitude, desire to succeed, and all those sort of important things too. But I use it as a more of a motivational um, standpoint rather than um, – because you always – look, you always want to get knockers, right? You mm. was going to get that. And uh, to me, it was at a fuel to my fire or to, to my belly to prove them wrong. It's pretty amazing that even as you were young, getting on that first flight ever out of New Zealand, that you, even though you were devastated and you didn't know what was going to happen once you hit the ground, that you were smart enough to realize that, you know, maybe this is bigger than myself, that, that I could really change the perception of golf among Maoris, among Kiwis and, and that sort of stuff. So, so when you look back on it, do you, do you think that you were maybe sort of ahead of your time, that you were, you know, you, you had already sensed a bigger purpose? Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, can say it, I can say it now because it happened, but uh, I was very close to my grandmother. My grandmother was um, a very spiritual person, and uh, I'll never forget, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother mm. during Christmas breaks and Easter and that sort of stuff, and Every time I had school holidays, I used to drive up to her place and spend time with her. I loved her company. She was inspirational. Um, and I remember at the age of 10, 
or yeah, 11 years old, she used to smoke a lot. So she'd sit there on the couch with her. She, she talked about life, you know, and incredible person, amazing. And she told me uh, at the age of 10, 11 years old that um, you will change people's lives, Michael. Um, wow. Thinking, oh, I was 10, you know, I'm thinking, are you crazy, Grandma? Come on. <laughs> now she, she goes, oh, I can see something that you can, you, you got it, Michael. You can change people's lives and whatever you do. Because I've been playing golf then, you see. Wow. Yeah. So um, it's almost like a fortune teller. Well, yeah, well, she was a, well, not a witch, but uh, <laughs> she, she was a clairvoyant as well. Um, you know, it's, it was pretty cool. And of course, at 10 years old, I didn't understand what she was talking about. No idea what she was talking about. And um, she taught me a lot of important things about life. And one of her um, philosophies was that um, you were born with two hands. I'm thinking, yeah, of course you're born with two hands. You know, one left, one right. So now, Michael, one left, one right, but one to receive, one to give back. Oh, um, wow. So that's one thing that always stuck um, close to me, to my heart. And uh, when I had the opportunity to give back to the game, that's given me so much. I did that by going back to New Zealand for 10 days after winning the US Open. I didn't do it for my own purpose, uh, but it was to, to prove to the kids back home, you know, if you dream big, they come true. And I spent 10 days going to different schools and um, what we call low decile uh, areas around Auckland and Wellington and spoke about, you know, how to succeed and, you know, whether you're going to be a golfer, rugby player or doctor, nurse, whatever it's going to be. It's all the same kind of uh, mental strength that takes you to succeed in any chosen sport or chosen occupation and uh, those 10 days I spent in New Zealand was <laughs> crazy yeah. absolutely absolutely crazy um, when I mentioned to my managers IMG at the time I'm, I want to go back for two weeks they said are you crazy Michael that's just the worst thing I said no I, I need to do this you know and this is what I'm passing it on you know what I learned from my grandmother um, was the reason why I went back to New Zealand so it was a, it was a great trip that, that's incredible. So this is obviously the hand that was supposed to give back. Um, and, and like you mentioned, your, your managers are probably thinking, oh, there's all sorts of opportunities that we could probably take in, in Europe or, or in, the, in the United States now that you're the US Open champion. But you had the forethought to realize that this is, you know, this is for New Zealand. This, this one's for you guys. And you went back and did that. that that's fantastic. Yeah, because um, as I said before, you know, I, I really um, believe that I was put on this planet for a purpose. Um, to play golf, but it was a great tool for me to motivate other young kids to say, look, you know, if I can do it, so could they. So we get to 1995. You've been a pro for two years and you get to the British Open at St. Andrews and you, you, you take a, a two-shot lead, I believe, going into the final round. And even though you sort of don't have your best stuff on the Sunday, you shoot 76, I believe you were only one shot out of the playoff between... Constantino Rocker and, and John Daly. Of course, John Daly went on to win famously. Um, what was the, was there a level of heartache after that, knowing that you weren't able to close it out? Or did it give you confidence that, well, I'm good enough to win a major, clearly? Well, um, initially, I think uh, emotionally, you go through uh, different stages. Uh, I was frustrated. I was disappointed. I was angry with myself. But then, looking back on that time, I learned so much about me as a player. I uh, thought, okay, I'm not good enough to win mentally. 
I think physically, yes, um, ball striking wise, anything else is fine, but mentally what's strong enough. So what I got away from that was that um, for me to win a major, I need to be mentally stronger. So that's one good thing about that. Because I think the only, only time or only way you can learn um, is through your mistakes. I mean, when you're winning, everything's easy, right? <laughs> but when you're going through a bad time, which I've been through loads, loads of bad times, you know, my VR sponge, I'm up and down like a yo-yo, you know, I'm either hot or cold. Yeah. If I get a sniff, sniff of the win you know, to win a tournament, you know, I don't, I don't lose. I, I, don't, I don't think I've lost um, if, I'm hit, if I'm leading the, from leading, I never lost a, uh, a tournament. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's who I am. It's my makeup. Um, but I love competing against the best players in the world, and I managed to do so uh, on several occasions. Was it tough to be a streaky player like that? Some players are just always consistent, and then they have a good couple of weeks a year. They might snag a victory out of it, and then some players have bursts of truly great golf every couple of years or wherever it might be. Was it tough for you to ride the roller coaster of those those feelings in that form? Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it's a very good point because uh, that's the only thing that frustrated me about my game was the consistency. Uh, you know, Sponge has seen me play some horrible golf, you know, shooting 80s and stuff like that. And then he's seen me fly. When I fly, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, I think. And, and um, it, emotionally, it's, uh, it's challenging. Um, with all the different ups and downs, because you know what you're capable of. Mm. You know, you know your 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 talent, and you know what you can do with the golf ball. When it doesn't go where you want to go, it's uh, it's frustrating because you know you've done it before a million times. So, but why why am I inconsistent? My answer is I have no idea. <laughs> I really don't. I really don't. Uh, I can't answer that question, but. But hey, you know, I'm, you know, looking back in my career now, once I think 17 times around the world. Um, so that's 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 pretty good, I think. Yeah, I can great. remember one funny story. Um, one of the <laughs> blows, I think it was 2003, and we're at the uh, TBC at Sawgrass, and Cambo was struggling that badly that even in the practice round we walked in because. You know, he was struggling to, to hit the fairway off the tee. And uh, anyway, we play the first round and we get to the 18th fairway. And I knew what, what Cambo was shooting. And um, and I said to him, I said, Cambo, 20 years ago, making birdie on this hole would mean something to you. He said, what are you on about now? And I said, you need three for 89. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, so, so he made birdie and, and yeah, broke 90. So... Um, <laughs> So you shot, you, you shot 89 at the players in 2003, was that right? Was that the first round or the second round? Can you remember? I can't, I can't remember that. That's, I think Sponge was telling a lie there. That's 89. <laughs> it was the first round and his highest score was a six. And, and uh, I can tell you, I, I found out where some hazards are that I didn't know existed. But... <laughs> So Cambo, um, let's let's fast forward now to, to 2005. You've, you've you know you've had a bunch of wins in your career by this stage. Um, you, you've won you know the Heineken Classic, the Johnny Walker Classic, big big opens in Europe. But we get to 2005, and and you missed the five, the first five cuts to start your year. We, at the beginning of 2005, were you thinking, oh no, this this might be one of those bad years, or what? What was the mindset at the time? 
no, my mindset was, oh, here we go again. You know, this is uh, a process I've been through on many occasions throughout my whole career. So I said to myself, okay, I've got to work harder. So I flew to, yeah, that's right, I missed first five cuts, shooting 80s. Sponge was there too. He's thinking, <laughs> okay, I need another job now. Another player because Michael's <laughs> not playing very well. Um, so I went to my see my coach, Jonathan Yarwood. I mean, you've got to understand that uh, I had a great team around me besides Sponge, a uh, great coach, yep. managers, you know, and uh, all that sort of stuff. And so I went to see Jonathan in, in uh, Orlando and spent five weeks just pounding balls. I mean, there's blisters on my blisters. And then all of a sudden I, I found a golden nugget, I call it. And, uh, <laughs> and I came back straight away. And then I'm not sure if you remember this, but I became like top 10 in my first tournament back after missing, missing five, first five cuts in a row. And then I, in the top five and I finished like third at Wentworth. And so I had a nice little run going, a nice little uh, uh, confidence of, you know, good form coming in, into fruition just through hard work. And and then we went to the qualifying at, went, <laughs> at Walton Heath um, and made the cut on the number. I'm not sure you remember this, Sponge, but uh, you remember we played with Steve Webster the last day and, and he hit it to 10 feet on the last hole, hit it to 9 feet. And I had to move my marker because I was right on his line. And Webby hit it right edge and lipped out. And I had it inside right and lipped in. So that was a number. So I qualified just. And then, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, no, I, I remember Steve Webster was, was the informed player um, on the European tour at that point. And um, I'd actually gone out to Walton Heath with, um, with a good friend of mine, Henrik Carlson, on the Friday um, after we played our second round and, and we'd walked the, um, walked the 36-hole qualifier. Anyway, Steve, and I won't throw his caddy under the bus, but neither of them had seen both the courses at Walton Heath. So they were lucky that Cambo had the, had the honour virtually the whole way around. And then Steve birdied a hole on the back nine. And I don't know what the hole was, but... Basically, you hit up this hill and, and it was it was probably a four iron off the tee, I think we had. Anyway, Steve just pulls out driver, not knowing where he's going, hits it straight into the trees. And then he chipped out, um, obviously, and then had the same score going down the 36th hole um, as we did. And, and as Cambo said, Steve missed the putt, Cambo hold, and, and we got the last spot in the US Open. It's incredible to think that. And, and two things I want to bring up. First of all, I, I believe it was the first time that USGA hosted a qualifier in England. So that that was a first in itself. But the second thing, I, I believe, Sponge, you told me a couple of weeks ago that, that Cambo, did you not even want to play that qualifier? You, you had sort of reservations about even teeing up in that 36-hole qualifier. Is that right? Yeah, because I, I played like five weeks in a row, four weeks in a row, and I was tired. And um, the only reason why I went, because like a 40-minute drive from my house, I lived in Brighton at the time. <laughs> so, you know, I was first off at 7.30 in the morning with, with Webby and my, um, my wife at the time, Julie, she said to me, Michael, just go, would you? So she <laughs> convinced me to go with my manager as well, Andrew Ramsey. She said, go, Michael, you know, it's only a 40-minute drive. So she got up early, maybe breakfast and that sort of stuff. So I thought, okay, because, I, you know, after playing four or five weeks in a row, you want to stay home. But I thought, why not? So I did. <laughs> so that's what happened. Well, that, that's awesome because 
So it was just more of a, a fatigue thing because you were actually in pretty good form. You finished third at the Johnny Walker Classic. You finished fourth at the British Masters. You missed the cut at the Irish Open and then you finished um, tied for eighth at Wentworth at the BMW Championship and then 15th at the Wales Open. So you were you were in some, some really good form. Once you'd qualified for the US Open, knowing what you'd achieved on the course in the past couple of months, did you feel like you were you were a realistic chance for the US Open? Um, no, not really. Uh, <laughs> I thought I thought I was playing good enough to, or well enough to actually um, be in the top ten. Was my goal? I remember I said before earlier early on that um, I always set myself goals and. Back in those days, you had like a little diary, right? So I used to have a little diary, like hit, I don't know, 10 out of 14 fairways or break 30 putts. Or... But that week, um, as I was flying over to, to Pinehurst, um, my goal was to finish top 10 and buy a, a secondhand Porsche. <laughs> um, what kind of Porsche? Uh, it was, well, secondhand, you know, like a career two, but uh, that, that, Definitely changed as the week progressed <laughs> to the C4S. Um, I was, I actually, what I did, funny enough, I, I wrote 997 on my golf ball uh, for the whole week. And, really? And yeah, yeah, that was my uh, my inspiration, really, was uh, playing for my Porsche. And as the week progressed, I all of a sudden I said to myself, okay, top five, <laughs> probably top five. Um, I buy a, a brand new Porsche, so I went from second hand to brand new uh, after two rounds. Yeah. I think I was, I think I was in the top ten after two rounds. Thinking about thinking about upgrading that purchase. Oh yeah, and then and then um, even during the last last nine holes or last in yeah, last nine holes, I was leading by one shot from Tiger. I was thinking about the what color, uh, the interior color, uh, what <laughs> yeah. color. What, what color brake uh, capillaries are going to have, red or yellow? Um, <laughs> is it going to be silver, gray, or polar silver? Um, you know, all these sort of things. So so you're thinking this with one, one hole to go? Last nine holes, yeah. I was thinking yeah. about my Porsche. Did that get you through it? Just sort of like a nice distraction? That's what it was. No, exactly, a great distraction. Because obviously the bigger picture was the US Open, but I was playing a game within the game. Hmm. And it happened uh, a couple of times. Uh, I think you're cutting for me, Sponge. Remember that time, Trophy Lancome? I played with Goose, Latif Goosen, for two rounds. And I just bought a Ferrari, and Goose sold his Ferrari. But he had the head cover. I'm sorry, the head cover. The car cover. Mm-hmm. And it was the same. It was a, a 360 Ferrari. So he said, oh. So after two rounds, it's going back in 2001 or three, I think. I can't remember. And uh, after two rounds, we're paired together. We're coming like 30th or something. Nothing too brilliant. But then uh, I said to him, you know, let's play for your Ferrari cover. I said, if I win, if I win, I'll um, you give me the cover for free. If you win, I'll pay you a thousand pounds for it because they deal. So we both shoot 64, I think it is, uh, in the third round. And then the last round, we're paired together again. So I've gone from 30th to like top 10 or something. And, I, and the same deal, you know, if I win, you give me the cover. If you win, uh, I'll give you a thousand pounds. Anyway, so <laughs> in the end, uh, he won it. 
and I came second. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's another story too. How how once again we're just playing, we're having fun together, you know, because we've got really good mates, close mates. He's probably one of my closest mates on tour. And then, boom! It's just incredible. Spice, yeah, do you remember that story? Yeah, yeah, I remember that clearly. But Cambo and, and Ratif had some great uh, matches. They used to play together quite regularly, not not just in tournament play, but also practice rounds. And um, yeah, there was always always a little bit of money would change hands. Well, it's re- it's really funny the way that I, I didn't know that about you, Cambo. That that Ratif was one of your you know South African great golfer that he was one of your great mates on tour. And, and it's funny the way that it worked out that he ended up leading this US Open through 54 holes. Is, when you look back on it, is that kind of serendipitous in a way? Um, yeah, but uh, the thing is that, you know, before we teed off, because I think it was last off, obviously, I was sick to last off. We had lunch together. You know, we're talking about cars and family. How's your, how's your boy? How's, you know, it's, so it was like a very casual talk and I could tell that you know just through his gunam so well through his mannerisms and stuff and body language that he wasn't he wasn't comfortable where he mm. was because um, I think he was leading by a lot and um, well Jason Gore too was up there Jason Gore was playing with Retief yep um, yeah but you know he, he's he was defending champion he's won Won two US Opens before then in 2005. So he was the hot favorite. So, you know, if you think about it, uh, the scenario that I was in, that you know, I was the underdog, the dark horse, you could say, I was flying underneath the radar. Tiger came to the picture. So um, I just did my own thing. And, you know, Sponge uh, did a great job that, uh, that day for once. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I I remember, I remember one conversation we had, uh, um, which is true um, uh, about the seventeenth, uh, the semi-first hole of par three down the hill. Uh, we were like having a this well, an argument about club selection. Uh, I wanted to hit seven irons, you know. Michael was at eight iron all day because he watched he walked the course before. And watched each approach for each hole, and he said that if you go go past the pin on on seventeen, it rolls away into a bunker. Um, so I said, okay, mate, I trust you. Let's do this. And I had eight irons about twenty feet, I think it was, and um, sent the putt for birdie. So I had like a, I think three shot lead going to the last hole. But see, these 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 small things. It's all about doing the little things right. Because mm. um, one hundred and eighty seven yards or something, you know, slightly downhill. To me, is a, is a good seminar, but because of the adrenaline rush, once again, he recognised uh, what I was going through. I didn't. Sometimes you don't even get the wind direction right because your mind's so confused. Sometimes you're not. It's not clear, and uh, to have a caddy-like sponge on the bag just to back things up and and um, confirm things makes us as players um, the job a lot easier. And just to go back to um, sort of just before the U.S. Open. Tiger had won the Masters, famously chipped in on the 16th hole, very dramatic victory at Augusta National, and he was arriving, obviously, as, as the hot favourite at the US Open at Pinehurst. Um, what, what were your interactions with Tiger up until 2005? Did you know him well? And were you almost, you know, in awe of what he had achieved up until that point? Yeah, I mean, I've got a lot of respect, a huge respect for Tiger, what he's done for the game. Um, he's the only one that moves the needle. 
you know, Rory does a little bit, but but Tiger, he's a. I mean, we, I got on great with Tiger. I mean, Steve Williams, the Kiwi, and you know, obviously Sponge is the Kiwi. So we we played a lot together um, mm. during during those years, five years, because I was playing well, and I was paired with him on a few occasions, and we played together a lot um, in Japan and uh, over in Europe and America. So we had a nice little bond, you know, we uh, um, we had a lot in common, um, and especially with Steve as well, Steve Williams, you know, um, being a Kiwi and all. Uh, we, yeah. had a, we had nice conversations on, on the golf course, normal conversations, and, you know, I respected, I always still do, of course, what he's done this week, weekend as well. Yeah, making the cut um, here at the PGA the where I am at Southern yep. Hills. Yeah, with with one leg again um, <laughs> to do that, it just shows you know true uh, how how determined he is to keep on playing the game at a high level. So, but yeah, you know, I've um, I got on nicely with him. I think um, Sponge did too, and yeah, it was nice to you know, go head to head with him in two thousand and five, and and uh, and beat him because if you think about it. It was in his peak of his yeah. career, you know, from 97 to 2007, or even longer than that. Um, he just dominated. And to disrupt him in his uh, quest for another major was even more... It, it's actually means... Obviously, winning a major is amazing, but uh, yeah. to do it in, in my fashion, in that fashion, was even more rewarding. Yeah, you, you beat the greatest, arguably the greatest player of all time in, in the greatest period of his career, you know, that 2005-6-7 era, which he was just, you know, vintage. It was incredible. Now, Sponge, I believe you've got a funny story about the house and renting the house uh, there there in the Pinehurst area of North Carolina. Can you tell us that one? <laughs> well, well, what happened um, when Cambo qualified, um, I called a good friend of mine, Ken Conboy, um, who was caddying for Thomas Bjorn. And he said to me, oh, commiserations, mate, you got to come over. He said, but the one good thing is um, we've rented a house and, uh, and Billy Foster, who was working with Darren Clark, Darren had withdrawn. So, so he said, there's, there's room for you. So um, I head on over and uh, um, on the Wednesday, every night we'd have a barbecue and, and a few beers were flowing. And, and on the Wednesday, we're all sitting around this table and we decided that um, – you know, if, if someone wins, they're going to pay for the house. Something, how good is this? Because I, I was sharing with, or well, Ken with Thomas Bjorn, and then I had um, Mike Kerr working for Miguel Angel Jimenez and uh, Glenn Murray working for Sergio Garcia, Ricky Roberts with Ernie Els, and, and Gary Matthews with Tim Clark. So I'm thinking, oh, I'm a pretty good chance here that one of those guys is going to win. <laughs> so anyway, cut a long story short. Um, after Cambo wins, I, I turn my phone on and the first six messages I get are these guys saying, mate, well done, fantastic. And, and by the way, thanks for, uh, thanks for paying for the house. <laughs> <laughs> they don't but, miss you, yeah, do they? Oh, I'd love to do that every week of the year. It'd be fantastic. So, no, we had a, we had a, a great time in the house and, and uh, Sergio's manager, um, Carlos Rodriguez was staying in the house as well. So every night, you know, someone would come over for dinner, whether it was Sergio um, or, or Joss Van Stippout, who was a uh, sports psychologist. And, and uh, yeah, every, every morning I'd say to Canberra, mate, you should see that kitchen table this morning. There's a lot of empty Heineken's on it. And, um, <laughs> you know, 
it was just a fun week with a great, great group of guys. Cambo, can you remember where you were staying that week? Did you do anything that got you into a routine? Were you eating at the same restaurant or doing the same things? Can you recall much about your setup? Oh, yeah, because um, I wrote it down in my diary, everything <laughs> I did. Um, I went to the same restaurant, at the same seat, and ordered uh, uh, salmon with vegetables and one glass of red wine. Every night? Uh, every night. Wow. Yeah, and... I stayed at Pine Needles, which is like a 20-minute drive, golf course, uh, resort, and uh, a few other players are staying there too. But, yeah, I mean, I had a very strict uh, fitness regime before before and after I played, and, um, yeah, just ate salmon, <laughs> even for breakfast. For breakfast, I, uh, I had scrambled eggs with salmon. So, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, this, <laughs> you know... Must have been the omega three getting you through. It must be, yeah. It must, it must, must have been the salmon, yeah. Omega three, you're right. That's a, that's amazing. Champions breakfast and dinner. So uh, the practice rounds, could could you could you feel that you were in form? Could you feel that you were striking the ball well, or did you feel sort of at at ease with the Pinehurst number two course? Um, well, that week um, you don't have to be long because I'm not really long off the tee. So, but for my iron play that week. My distance control, my irons were just phenomenal, and I swing that well. Confidence was high. Uh, I remember playing the practice round with BJ Singh. VJ uh, and I were pretty good mates, and um, I was having problems for my my bunker shots, and you know the coming out not, not much spin and just horrible. And he gave me a tip <laughs> um, how to play the bunker shots uh, for that week, and I remember hitting hitting into seven bunkers that week. Got up and down. Six times, and uh, hold a bunker shot. So, uh, so once again, it's about doing the small things right. Yeah, one thing I one thing I remember about that week was um, because Cambo had qualified. You know, obviously, we never had much time to to organise flights and everything, so we didn't roll up there till I think Monday afternoon. So, um, I think Cambo might have played eighteen on the Tuesday and then nine on Wednesday, which that was a regular. Um, thing that you know Canberra would do, he'd, he'd roll up at ten o'clock on a Tuesday, and we'd play you know nine holes or maybe eighteen. So so it was kind of you know you see um, some pros that that get into major championships and they you know they go to the course on the Saturday before and they start doing laps, and by the time Friday afternoon comes when you need your energy to make the cut, they're all worn out. So um, you know the great thing was that it was just like a regular week for us, and by the time we got over jet lag and, and just played. You know, the, the practice rounds and Thursday morning, Cambo was ready to go. Cambo, you shoot 71. Uh, obviously, Pinehurst number two being a par 70, you shoot one over on the first day and one under on the second day to get yourself to even par and only two shots behind Olin Brown, your good mate Retief, and Jason Gore uh, tied for the lead after 36 holes at two under par. Um, how, how confident were you feeling at, at the halfway mark? Um... I can't remember. Uh, I think I was feeling pretty good. Uh, <laughs> um, I was, wasn't overconfident. I was just happy in my my headspace um, while I was playing. Uh, there's one thing that we did actually, because um, my coach was there too, Jonathan. And we worked out that I had I averaged I think ten six irons in my hand during the week <clears throat> during the, sorry, one round. 
So what we'll be doing really was practicing my six irons and seven irons because, um, wow, yeah, that was a, a good thing to do. And I, I've been doing it ever since then. Because you'll, you'll find a pattern after a while. On each golf course you play, you'll find a pattern on how many, what clubs you hit. You're going to have like at least six wedges in your hand yep. during, a, during the course of a round. And that particular week at the Pinehurst, I averaged, I think, 187 yards or something like that. Um, the par threes and, and second shots to par, par fours. So that's what we did. We worked on my distance control around that yardage between 192 to about 180. Yeah, so, so you knew that the six iron was going to be a key club that week. And it's, was that comforting to know that, you know, that there was one club that was really going to you know, butter your bread that week? Yeah, because I was swinging it well with my irons. I mean, you know, I can shape it left and right, right to left, high or low, whatever, um, depending on what type of shape or shot I needed to do. And those greens are so tiny. You know, you've got to hit certain pockets of the greens and, and just work the ball into the uh, towards the pin. So um, my, my shaping and my distance control that week was just phenomenal. I think it's, uh, it's not my best golf I've played, Um I know that sounds strange, but uh, it was good enough to win the US Open. But I think my best golf I, I ever played in my life was in 2000. I won the Heineken um, Classic. That was pretty phenomenal, I think, for me to say that that was my best ball striking round for four rounds. But the biggest thing that uh, we worked on also with my coach, Jonathan, was the putting. It's quite funny. Uh, I turned up with a belly putter on a Monday. Mm-hmm. So it's the first day. <laughs> And he, I'm on the on the green, and Jonathan turns up, and uh, he's I'm there with a the belly putter. He said, "What are you doing, Canberra?" I said, "Oh, I'm so desperate. My putting's so bad, you know." So he grabbed it from me and threw it in the bin, and he goes, "No." <laughs> so what we did actually, I think it was the next day on Tuesday, we spent two hours uh, at Pine Needles Golf Club, where I was staying on my putting, and it was a great move because there's no because you know being at a major, there's always a big circus and there was no one there. We just practiced on my putting for two hours, found another golden nugget in my putting and I putted phenomenal that week. Um, that's one thing that really separated, I think, me from the rest of the field is that uh, the combination of ball striking and mental fortitude and that sort of stuff of the putting that week was just phew, out of this world. In its 51st year of publication, Australian Golf Digest is the oldest golf media brand in Australia reaching over 850,000 golfers every month. Australian Golf Digest provides the best written and video news in golf, both locally and internationally. Golf fans can get full access to the magazine through the Digital Pass, which starts from just $3.33 per month and also includes instruction, golf course and golf travel content. Head over to australiangolfdigest.com.au or check them out on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Sponge, um, Sponge, what are your memories of the first two rounds at Pinehurst? Did, how comfortable were you? Were you a little bit nervous knowing that he was a really good chance to win this week? Well, I never really thought that Cambo was going to win. It was more of, you know, going there and making the cut. Um, but the great thing was the first hole at Pinehurst, I want to say you birdied it three out of the four days, Cambo, because you got off to a flyer every day. Um, and, and like you said, you know, your your distance control was fantastic. You were driving it well, and and your putter was hot. And it wasn't until I watched the highlights reel um, that that showed how many putts you did actually hold. You were holding them from everywhere. Um, one key key <laughs> time 
remember was in the last round, was on the 10th hole and, and your third shot was a little wedge into the grain and you thinned it slightly and it hung on, probably about 30 or 40 feet away. Anyway, you binned that part for birdie and, you know, things like that happened and um, it was it was definitely your week and uh, it was it was a lot of fun fun coming down the stretch, um, you know, out with, with Olin. Olin Brown was uh, – was a real gentleman on the golf course and he could see what was going on and he was going for a million and, and a couple of times, um, you know, he, he would be, would be waiting to tee off and, and, you know, he was chatting to Cambo and, and uh, keeping him relaxed and, and no, we had a nice time out there. Yeah. And, and we'll get to that final round in a second, but um, the third round Cambo, you shoot 71 and you, you get yourself to, to one over par and you're only four shots back of Retief, which, you know, as we know, at a US Open is not a whole lot. Anything can go wrong, and, and it turned out that it did go wrong. What was Saturday night like for the both of you? Were, were you excited? Were you nervous? Did you think it was even possible to come from four shots back against Retief Goosen? Well, um, for me, I just thought, okay, I'm playing for second or third. You know, Goosey, he's won two US Opens. There's no way that um, this is my how I thought mentally. All I can do is just control what I can do, can control. And I thought if I shoot number 69, I'll probably finish two shots, three shots behind him. So I, I kind of conceded the, the win really, already. Wow. And then, after, and then after about six holes or seven holes, I was leading. So I had to change my, my, my mental status uh, uh, <laughs> very, very quickly to, to win. I had to start thinking about the Porsche a bit more. Absolutely. That's what got me through is the Porsche. <laughs> Uh, funny enough, I actually brought my coach a porch as well. Um, so Did you really? For a little bonus, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, and looking back right now, I, I just thought, you know, top three is going to be a good result for me because I kind of conceded that Goose is going to win it. And like you mentioned, well, like Sponge mentioned, actually, um, you buried the first hole. How excited were you, and and, and did you did it start to feel like a, a realistic possibility even after the first hole? Um, yeah, I, I suppose it did because um, I knew this going to be a tough day, especially in the last round of a major. And I just thought to myself, I forgot if I get off to a good start, I, I've got a slight chance or a chance to win this thing. But I wasn't thinking too far ahead myself. I was just thinking about the next hole, the next shot, you know. One shot at a time, um, kind of thing, which is used so many times, but it's so true, so strong. Um, yeah, I just, and then all of a sudden, after I think it was one under, one under after seven holes, I was leading by two or three or something, and then Tiger started creeping out behind me. So <laughs> uh, it was it's good to you know hold him off. I can remember, I think, yeah, when we walked onto the sixth green, and that was the first um, leaderboard. And, and yeah, you're at the top of the board and it was like, we, we never realised what was going on behind us. And um, yeah, it was like, wow, how's this? And uh, and then well, I remember we got on the seventh hole and and like Campbell was saying, all the greens are like upside down sources. And and we had around 153 yards hole and, and um, you had to hit to certain portions. So we were trying to, to land the ball at around the 140 yard um, spot, which would normally be, you know, a, a a pitching wedge, you know, when you got a bit of adrenaline. Well, anyway, Cambo hits this wedge, and we're we're going for the 140, and it flies 150. But luckily, <laughs> it landed in an area which was, you know, still stayed on the green. But from then on, um, 
I was allowing for a lot of adrenaline because he was just so pumped up. Hence that shot on on seventeen. Um, you know, I, I knew that uh, he was he was so pumped up, and and the only place you couldn't miss it was long. And um, I was pretty confident the Odon was going to get there. And Cambo Tiger sort of he's not really in the hunt in terms of you. He, he's four or five shots back until he birdies the seventh hole. And I'm sure he would have heard the roar around that stage. But once he got himself into the mix, what were you thinking? Were you thinking, oh, no, Tiger Woods, to that reigning Masters champion, he's coming for me? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I saw it as an opportunity, not a threat. Okay. Um, yeah, obviously, I respect the guy immensely. Yeah. But if you say to yourself, which happens so many times when you, when you see his name on the leaderboard, you know, um, the, the, the thought thoughts come into mind, like, oh, no, here we go again. Tiger's going to win this thing. You know, you, 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 have, a, you have a choice of words hmm. uh, to, to speak and what to think about. What I thought about really was just my own game and just uh, try to tell myself to keep in the present because the present is, is a point of power, I think. And, uh, so I, and I did that for, for the last, you know, 12 holes or so, or 11 holes. I just thought myself just... Do, do what you can do uh, and do what you can, know what you can do and it'll be good enough. And, you know, I just, I was playing so well. So I wasn't really threatened by Tiger. I was more like enjoying the moment more because he was there. So I saw it in a very different light. And I'm sure you would have, I'm sure you would have embraced the challenge. You probably would have thought, well, one day I'd, I'd love the opportunity to beat Tiger down the stretch of a major. And it sounded like you flipped into that gear almost instantly. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I, I never thought it would happen, but it, it did. You know, I, I was dreaming about that occasion. You know, I facing Tiger head to head in the major championship for the last nine holes was, was a dream come true, and once again, it came true. Um, so, and how I handled that was, I think, what helped. Sorry, what helped me handle that occasion was me losing or coming third at the Open in '95. So. Because '95, I had no mental tools in my toolbox, and mm. and this in 2005, I had a lot uh, of stuff to to focus on and to um, yeah, and it all came to you know, this trophy, which is right next to me. Now, yeah, it's a it's a pretty trophy, isn't it? Have a look at that. That's awesome. Uh, just just for the listeners, Michael Campbell is showing us the the uh, the, the U.S. Open trophy that he keeps in his in his house there in Spain, which is fantastic. Uh, so, Cambo, you birded the 10th hole. And and just to, to reference what you just said, what kind of mental tools did you have now versus 1995 when you lost the 54-hole lead at the Open at St. Andrews? What were you? How were you better equipped now? Basic stuff, really. It's not rocket science. Uh, deep breathing, um, slowing down, because I know that I speed up. Um, so I was focusing on my walking pace, um, I was focusing on my breathing, affirmations, telling myself, you know, I'm good enough. I work hard for this. Um, loads of stuff. Mm. My car, my Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's 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 not complex. It's pretty simple stuff. Um, you know that the psychologist teacher, and I, I like reading books on psychology as well. I think one one thing, oh yeah, one thing that I, I focused on 
because I love reading books, is uh, a paragraph by Bruce Lee. And the book is called Zen and the Martial Arts, I think. Zen and the Martial Arts. Yep. Anyway, so he, he talks about um, energy through your body is, and your mind is like water. And um, wow. obviously, if, when water freezes, when water freezes up, you know you've got no chance to perform that certain movement, flowing in, in a very flowing manner. So he talks about the uh, your mind and your and the energy going through your body is is flowing well, like water. So I use that a lot as well. Wow! So the, there's a part of Bruce Lee inspiring your victory at Pinehurst. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely, of course, because you always you always learn off the masters or the best. Uh, at any given uh, discipline, uh, whether it's sport or you know what what Bruce Lee did, um, you always learn. Um, you always got to learn something new every day. It's one thing I try and do, even today, is to learn something new every day. Cool little insight there. That, that, that's awesome. How how he inspired you, Sponge. Uh, final round. Your players in contention at a U.S. Open. Did you feel like you had to do anything particularly important, or what? What was your mindset that Sunday? Well, before we started, I, I honestly thought that if, if we could finish top 10, you know, it'd be a, be a good result um, because obviously it was a monster of a, of a track and, you know, Canberra hadn't, hadn't played that great in America. So, um, you know, realistically, I thought if we can hang on to top 10, anything, anything better than that's a bonus. So, um, you know, when we went out there, you know, as I said, birding in the first hole was fantastic and um, I was just trying to do my normal job and um, you know, there's no point in me getting up tight because I'm not hitting the shots. So it was more of just a, another day out there and, and just enjoying it, which um, which I did. Um, that that final round playing with Lowell and Brown and and he had uh, Teddy Scott caddying for him, who now well, Bubba's old caddy and working for Scotty Scheffler. So I know Teddy um, really well, and we we just had a lot of fun out there. And uh, yeah, I've got some great memories of um, of that final day. And Cambo Tiger birdies ten and eleven to get within two shots. But like you said, you were you were really embracing that challenge, weren't you? So, did, as you were playing and you could hear the roars, I imagine of, of Tiger making a bit of a run. Did that did that give you an extra adrenaline boost? Um, yeah, of course. I mean, you got to understand there's a Tiger roar and a normal roar. I mean, the Tiger yeah. roar just goes permutates or goes through the the whole golf course. It's incredible, and I, I was just enjoying the moment. I said to myself, this, this is fun. This is my playground. You know, let's have fun with this. Mm. I wasn't uh, at all, um, what do you call it? Um, uh, I didn't feel that I was under pressure. Um, the pressure was on him, really, not me. Yeah. Uh, to win it. Um, yeah, because when you bird 10 and 11, I think I hold a big putt on, on 12 to birdie that one uh, from about 25 feet. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the proudest moment for me in that last round, because I think he was in, in front of us, wasn't he, Sponge? Um, he was playing 15. And I'm over my second shot uh, on the 14th hole. I've got like a seminar in my hand. And um, I'm over my shot and I hear this big roar and it's obviously Tiger Ebertie's but he's uh, 15. Mm. It's like to six feet and holes it up and this big roar. So I had to step away again because it's so loud. Yeah. So, but then I regrouped and I hit this career, I think one of my best iron shots 
under the circumstances, knowing that he's got a lot of birdie. So he got one shot closer to, to me. So I had to pull away from my uh, original shot because he birdied that hole, and then I regrouped and hit this perfect seven iron to about 10 feet. To me, when I did that, I thought, I'm ready. I'm ready to win this now because nothing's wow. going to stop me. That yeah, was that the was, moment. Uh, that was the most defining moment in my career, I think. Uh, not many people know that. I haven't told story the story for. Or I haven't told the story before. Actually, I just remembered it. And that was the the second shot into the into the fourteenth hole. Yeah, because um, I remember uh, seeing the coverage of it just recently, and uh, I had to step away because the roars was was so loud. So I got back into it and hit about ten feet. I remember it was in, it was in the rough, and, and um, yeah, in between clubs six and seven iron. And ended up going with the seven, and it worked out perfectly. Um, but yeah, it was it was a loud roar. Um, but the great thing was, as as the round was progressing, um, every time we heard a roar, obviously Tiger making a birdie, Cambo was was birdieing that hole or the next one. So um, I had an eye on the leaderboard, I knew what was going on, and 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 all these names were gradually disappearing, but there was one that wasn't. So um, <laughs> I, I always knew, I knew knew we had a little bit of a buffer. So um, you need when um, when you've got Tiger coming at you. So it was just being able to respond to the energy of the crowd that, that confirmed that you were going to win to yourself. Was it Cambo? Yeah, well, what I did, um, once again, this came from absolutely nowhere. Uh, maybe it was a golfing gods that was talking to me at the time. But every time I every time that Tiger buried the hole, uh, I would dob my hat. And... Uh, as in saying thank you. So what I was doing in my mind, now this sounds a little bit crazy, what I was doing in my mind was I was thanking them. Sorry. I was transferring the energy from the crowd to Tiger to me. Really? Like almost like a like an energy kind of spiritual thing, right? Yeah, yeah. But no one taught me that. No one knows how cold just taught me that. I think it came from my, my grandmother. She, she taught me it somehow. But yeah, that was... Uh, that was weird thing to do but it worked <laughs> so you would sort of rub the the peak of your cap and just trying to try to absorb some of that positive energy from the roar of tiger's success exactly wow now did you know that you were doing it at the time or is it now that you look back on that and you maybe watch highlights that you realize that's probably what you were doing um no i, I was i was consciously doing it wow. um yeah but um yeah it was kind of weird but it worked um and just on that Obviously, um, for, for most of your life, you've worn the the, jade, the green jade necklace around your neck. And I think I remember reading a story where you said that it, it keeps you safe while you're traveling over water. Can you tell us a little bit about that necklace and how it relates to the Maori culture? Yeah, well, it's um, the Maori culture is quite, uh, it's, well, it's very spiritual. And um, we believe that uh, you know, we have things upon us, our body to, to help us grow, uh, help keep us safe. Um, so uh, I wore that for a very long time. And if it breaks, you've got to bury it. Um, you can't wear it again. And uh, it's, it's, it's quite quite deep, uh, all this stuff. But uh, I, uh, I I believe that uh, it's the reason why I played some really nice golf because of my spirituality with, with the Maori people, or me being Maori. Um, yeah, so... Uh, it's always been very close to I me mean, culturally, although I've been away now for like 30 something years from the country, I still feel that 
in my house here in Spain's got a, a few Maori carvings, just a gentle reminder of who I am um, as a person and, and my beliefs. And but everyone's different, but uh, it's given me strength as a person, not only just goal, but also as a person. I love that it has that that you know your U.S. Open win has that Maori spirituality kind of element to it. It just makes it such a such a cool U.S. Open. So you birdie ten and twelve, like you mentioned, by sinking quite long putts. Did what you had discovered in that sort of practice session with your coach Jonathan Yarwood on the putting green at Pine Needles Golf Club where you were staying? Do you think that fed into those two birdies and being able to hold those two long birdie putts under pressure? I didn't even think about it really. I mean, I didn't think about my well, putting straight technically. I just, I, I felt it more. It was more of a feeling rather than a technical thought. So, but I was putting well the whole week after the session with Jonathan on my putting. And it, I mean, the, the hole seemed like a big bucket mm. <laughs> to me. So, uh, <laughs> was I surprised? No, because I was putting well. Um, so, yeah, that's my answer really is that when, when you're in that moment, when you're in the, in the zone, I call it, in the bubble, you know, everything seems to be so easy. Uh, club selection wise, whether it's going to be the putting or chipping or bunker shots, everything seems so easy that week. Now, Cambo, you make an incredible pass save from the greenside bunker at 15. It was a really tough shot, it was up against the lip. And then you get to the 16 pole. And from, from memory, Sponge told me it was, it was quite a good bogey. Sponge, can you remember that bogey on 16 and the way that, you know, it, it, he sort of avoided a worse score? Yeah, the 16th was was a, a strong par four. And um, I remember Cambo, Cambo had him a left rough and it was so thick. Anyway, he managed to um, chop it out and, and, and get it down near the green. Um, now, I can't remember after that. I can't remember how close you... You hit it, or did you miss the green with your third? I'm not sure now. No, no, it's about 20 feet. Okay, and then yeah, and then you um, you you, two, you hold a good putt for your for your bogey putt because I can remember standing on standing in the rough waiting for Cambo to get to his ball, and and where I was standing directly left was the 17th green, and I actually saw Tiger three putt. So that was. That was a nice little bonus from Tiger. Um, <laughs> so I, I knew that um, you know that Campbell was going to struggle to make party on sixteen, and, and yeah, that was that was nice of Tiger to give us that that little leeway. <laughs> now, did you convince Campbell to chip out of the rough, or was there any thought of going for the green on that second, or was it just a no-brainer based on the lie? Oh, he had, had no choice. It was more of you know get a, a nine on or a wedge at it get it down as far as you could. The rough was so thick. So, Cambo, you are, this is, you know, one of the defining moments of the back nine. You make an incredible birdie at the at the 17th, the par three there, to give you a three-shot lead standing on 18T. And and, and like the, the pair of you have mentioned earlier in this episode, um, you actually convinced um, Cambo to hit an eight iron. Is that right, Sponge? Yes, um, yeah, we, we got on the on the seventeenth tee, and and um, I knew how much adrenaline Canberra had in his body because everything was just going miles. And uh, you know, he, he pulled the seven iron out, and it actually took me a while to convince him that it was was eight iron. And, and I just knew we actually had one hundred ninety seven yards to the hole. Wow, one seven. Wow. I've got I've got my old yardage here in front of me. Actually, we had one hundred seventy one and twenty six. Anyway, 
The eight iron, because eight iron would normally go 150, maybe 155. And that's how pumped up he was. So, wow. um, you know, I knew, I just knew that he could carry those front bunkers and, and that anything long was dead. So uh, eventually I managed to convince him to, um, to hit that and it worked out perfectly. Just on that sponge, you, you said you've got the yardage book there from, from that week. Anything stand out to you when, when you look at it now? I've got, I've got all the, um, yeah, all the, all the numbers that, that um, he hit into the greens. And uh, I, I actually, I, I took my yardage book um, back to the course 10 years later and, uh, and walked around before the 2014, I think it was open. Yep, yep. And uh, I, I could remember every shot. And I actually had um, Lydia Coe's caddy, uh, Steve Kay. Um, came around with me because he wanted to quiz me on any information, and it was amazing. I remembered every shot from from every every hole um, during that last round ten years later. So, um, and and the other thing was, as a caddy, you know, you're never allowed inside the the clubhouse um, during a tournament. So it was nice to be able to go into the club rooms afterwards and see all the memorabilia um, from all the opens that, that had been held at Pinehurst. You know, as you realise, you know, you were you're probably going to win this US Open. Did that did that really sort of take some of the pressure off knowing that you were going into the 18th hole with a three-shot lead? I actually wanted to win by more than three. One birdie the last hole to win by four <laughs> was my goal. Oh, really? But um, I just pulled my driver five yards too far left and had to chip out sideways. Had 75 yards for my third shot. Had a great third shot to about probably six feet and missed that, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I I think having a three-shot lead playing the last hole was no danger around, apart from out of bounds on the back of the green. Um, it was pretty much done and dusted then, I think. And and you, as you sat over that six-foot bogey putt, what was going through your mind? Were you were you thinking of your grandmother? Were you thinking of New Zealand? Or were you thinking of yourself? But you know, what was running through your mind? Just hold the putt. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. But um, there's a photo of me after holding a putt. I looked towards the heavens uh, with my hands up in the air and I thanked all those people who have passed on before this time and thanked them mm-hmm. for their strength. Just everyone, really, that made this possible, especially my grandmother. In its 51st year of publication, Australian Golf Digest is the oldest golf media brand in Australia reaching over 850,000 golfers every month. Australian Golf Digest provides the best written and video news in golf, both locally and internationally. Golf fans can get full access to the magazine through the digital pass, which starts from just $3.33 per month and also includes instruction, golf course and golf travel content. Head over to australiangolfdigest.com.au or check them out on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Once you once you hold the putt and you'd won the U.S. Open, um, what what was it like to to realise a childhood dream and 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 to to achieve something that not only for yourself but something really special for New Zealand and 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 for the Maori people of New Zealand? Well, it took a while to sink in. Um, you know, probably a month later, I thought about it because after you win a major, you know, it's, it's like living in the fishbowl. Uh, you, you, <laughs> you, you, your world just goes crazy. It goes crazy. I can't remember. I can't remember two weeks, three weeks after it. Really, it's just wow. madness. It's a blur. Absolute madness. Absolute blur. It's a fun. It's a fun blur, though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, like you sort of 
you're in like a bit of a vortex, right? Like you've got no idea what's going on. You're getting pulled in different directions. You got to sign this. You got to sign that. Um, and I believe that Sponge, Sponge did something special with the flag. Is that right, Sponge? Yes. Um, as uh, as all tournaments tournaments, um, the the caddy the caddy gets the flag. The player gets the check. So uh, the the flag on the, <laughs> the flag on the day was a special one. It was um, it was a tribute to Payne Stewart. And uh, so there was a picture of Payne on the flag, and um, and I, I, I um, after uh, Ratif and Jason had finished, I went out to the green and and got the flag. Anyway, funny story. A couple of weeks later, Cambo says to me, "You know, I want the flag." And I says, "Well, you can't have it. I'm keeping that. That's mine." And he says, "Well, <laughs> he says, well, I won't sign it for you." There, I said, "Well, I don't care. You're not getting it." But the great, <laughs> the great thing was they they always have a spare. So Cambo got the replica, but I've got the real thing. And he did sign it. <laughs> <laughs> Signed it in the end. Well, I've been telling everybody, I've got the rep- I've got the real one. You've got the replica. I've been telling that story. So I've got it here in my, in my house. And I said, I've got the real flag and Sponge has got the replica. <laughs> <laughs> well, now they know the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all come out now. Cambo, you, you won one major in your career, but it's obviously a really special one because like we discussed before, you beat Tiger Woods down the stretch on a Sunday at a US Open when he was in his absolute prime. How much does that add to the special memories that you have when you think about your own major championship victory, that it, that it was just maybe that little bit more special than, than if you'd just won a random sort of PGA Championship or US Open where he wasn't in his prime? It makes it even more special. Absolutely, um, just adds to it. You know, when I tell people I won the, well, I don't tell people I won the US Open, but when they ask a question, mm. um, you know, uh, I won the US Open in two thousand and five. They go, oh yeah, that's great, cool. And and uh, I said, our oh, target came second. I go, wow, really? <laughs> you came second? So they're more impressed with that than I beat them. but not only just tiger though you look at that leaderboard obviously you're you're good mate and two-time major championship winner at the time retief goose and he was he was leading the tournament after 54 holes uh you shot 69 you shot one under on a on a really tough day on a tough golf course to finish at even par and, and beat tiger by two shots but then just beneath tiger you've got tim clark sergio garcia Mark Hensby at five over par, and you've got Davis Love, VJ, and Rocco Mediate, who would obviously lose to, to Tiger in the US Open a few years later, at six over par. So this was this was a, a golf course with a cream rose to the top, and, and you got the victory. Yeah, I mean, because I, I knew that after playing the, the practice rounds that um, I thought even par is going to win it. Hmm. Um, just, just through the greens, uh, just, you know, they're so tough, so tiny. As Sponge said before, uh, and I just thought, okay, even, round even par is going to win this thing. So when I was shooting round even, even par for the first three rounds, you know, I put myself in a really good position because I had a score in my mind of even, even par. Um, I thought under par, what's definitely going to win this tournament? And so you know, history tells that uh, even par was good enough. And, and I, I was reading and doing a bit of research for this episode. Um, that either Steve Williams or Tiger hung around on the 18th green to say congratulations to the both of you. Um, is that true? And, and and how special was that moment? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, for example, uh, the first person size sponge uh, hugged was uh, C. Williams. 
Yeah. Uh, he was there straight away and he said, you know, a lot of people proud back home in New Zealand. Well done, mate. Wow. And then, and then yeah, Tiger hung around for, for prize giving because um, you never see a guy finishing second on the, you know, on the prize giving ceremony. You just see the winner. Yeah. So that was nice of, of him as well to hang around. After the round in the locker room, you sort of said to Tiger, you know, mate, how do you do this all the time? And he just said, luck. And he, you know, like in a cheeky way, he said, oh, it's just luck. And he sort of walked off. Um, in that moment, did you feel like you got a day's worth of what it was like to be Tiger Woods and, 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 and the, the, the adrenaline rush that you get of performing at the highest level when everyone needs you to hit that shot? Yeah, I, I felt like him that day, that's for sure. Um, just, just for a brief moment. <laughs> <laughs> Um, to, to actually experience what he's been, well, he went through 10 times, I think maybe 11 times. He won 11 majors by that mm. time. Yeah. I can't remember the amount. Um, but yeah, to be like, like, like that and then to be on top of the world and, and walk golf and to win a major um, was an amazing feeling. And that's what I practiced for all those years in Tatahi Bay golf course and, and all that time at the gym and hitting balls and practicing and. Years and years. So you've got to realize that 2005 happened because of what I did 30 years before, you know, 25 years before, whatever it's going to be, mm. since I was, you know, started playing golf at age of eight or nine years old. Um, so it didn't, it didn't happen overnight. Uh, it happened through a lot of hard work. And, and to be on top of the world for that moment um, and to be like what I think Tiger feels like to win a major, He's done it, what, 14 times, 15 times, whatever? I've lost count now. 14 15, times. yeah. 15, sorry, 15. See, I'm so bad at uh, golf stats, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but to do it 15 times, like Jack, 18 times, I mean, wow. I mean, Gary Player, nine times. You know, those, that's, just, that's just phenomenal. So, yeah, it was, it was nice. But um, he, uh, to, to, to elaborate that story about... Um, having a conversation with Tiger. Mm. I remember after speaking to my wife at the time, Julie um, went to, to the bathroom, to the locker room. It's empty because everyone's gone. And um, I'm at the wash station, basin and washing my face and trying to get my mind together for the prize, prize giving. And uh, so I'm there and washing my face and I hear this flush and it's Tiger. So he's washing his hands next to me, right? And we're pretty good mates, and he doesn't say a thing to me. And said, uh, I said to him, turned to my mate, how do you do this? You know, because I've done it once, you've done it 10 times because I've a bit of luck. So, but I could tell in his eyes, he was still pissed off. He lost, um, <laughs> which, is a, which is a true sign of, of his determination and how he wants to win every single time he plays. But then he comes back after about 10 seconds and says, Cambo, well done. So, uh, that was a nice exchange I had with him. Um, but he's, uh, yeah, he's just, he's just phenomenal. I mean, what he's done for the game of golf around the world, and you know, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be where I am today because he inspired me. Yeah. You know, since '97, when he came out and started playing, and he uh, he raised the bar in, in, in many many ways in the game of golf. So um, I think we're very fortunate to have him playing our game. Yeah, well said, and and even better that you you got in by a couple shots that day. That was you know it's it's amazing for you to look back on that. Now, lads, you you, you both have to tell me about the celebrations that night. Did 
Did you give it heaps? Did you give it a good run? <laughs> yeah, well, um, well, the thing you got to understand, right? So by the time um, I got back to the hotel, I was doing media for six hours. Wow. So <laughs> uh, I got back about 12 o'clock, I think it was. And obviously I was exhausted, but I was still, I was still buzzing. And, and uh, uh, Pine Needles uh, held a little party for me, which was fantastic. So everyone, everyone there was drunk. <laughs> I was still sober. <laughs> I, I didn't so. have a chance. I didn't have a chance really. And, and uh, I knew one time, um, after about a couple of hours, I pulled uh, Sponge aside and um, went to this, uh, I think, the conference room. And we had, we had a nice little uh, time together about talking about the victory and that sort of stuff. And, uh, but, yeah, once again, it's a complete blur because after you win a major and, and then you do, you do your you know, media commitments, it's, it's a long, long time. I'm not complaining about that. I mean, yeah, there's no way. But, yeah, I'm sure... But put it this way, I've drunk a lot of red wine and champagne from that cup, that's for sure, uh, over the last time. Um, I had it for like 11 months. Sponge, uh, what do you remember about that conversation? How cool it was for Cambo to, to pause the night and just say, look, just you and me, you and the caddy, jump into the conference room and have a beer and, and appreciate and soak up what you'd done. Can you take us through that conversation and what was that like and how special was it? Yeah, it was. Um, it's something that I've, I've actually spoken to Cambo about um, since and um, we would have loved to have taped that conversation because there was just the two of us there and we had the cup sitting on the floor and the room was dark but there's a little bit of light just silhouetting through and uh, and you know we spoke about everything and anything pretty much you know about our families and you know the ups and downs he had had and and uh, you know I remember saying well you know where'd you nick that cup from and we were having a bit of a laugh <laughs> and it was, it was just it was, it was just, um, you know, such an amazing, it was like a dream really for me anyway, that, um, you know, to, to actually, to caddy for someone that, that had won a major championship and, and we were both on, on such highs. It was, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was just a fantastic, fantastic conversation and, uh, and a dream come true for both of us. And I recall, um, walking into the bar and, and, um, Two of Cambo's close friends, Marcus Wheelhouse and Martin Crow, um, who sadly passed away, the cricketer, and they're both smoking cigars. And <laughs> <laughs> they that that had a couple of drinks, and and uh, there was a, a nice crowd of people in there, and and yeah, we had such a such a fun night. How was the hangover the next day for the both of you? <laughs> a, a good hangover, you know? Well, I wasn't. I mean, the thing is, when you got some adrenaline going through your body, I wasn't hungover. All right. Um, yeah, it's always a strange feeling because I drank a lot, <laughs> as you can imagine. But yeah, I don't feel I was fine, you know. And the funny thing about that was that um, when I landed, I think it was a Tuesday morning or something, it was my son's sports day. So my wife picked me up, I think it's 9.30 in the morning or whatever, and then we straight to the sports day. Wow. And he was racing, you know, and, you know, they're different, um, you know, athletics and stuff like that. So I turned up with the US Open trophy. Um, How good! Showed everyone. Yeah, it was it was fun. <laughs> now it doesn't end there because 2005 gets even better for you. Um, if you look through some of the results that you had, you go to the British Open the, the, the following month and you finish uh, tied for fifth there. Tiger wins. He he gets you this time round. He he gets you, but uh, he he finishes tied for fifth. And then at the PGA Championship, it bolsters roll. Phil Mickelson wins, but you finish tied for sixth. So 
you performed at a really high level at the majors even after that victory. How satisfying was that almost to validate and back up that US Open victory for you? Um, well, it's sort of relative, really, because I'm disappointed I didn't win um, the Open or the PGA. Because mm. once you have that taste of winning a major, you want more, you see. So yeah. I, I looked at those two results um, as a little bit disappointing. Okay. Of course, if I didn't, if I didn't win the US Open, yes, absolutely. 50 Open and 6 at the US PGA would be amazing. But, you know, your, your whole mindset completely changes. So, yeah, it's disappointing. But I look back now and once again, I had a nice little run. Then I won the World Match Play after that. Uh, I think in September, I think it was. Or I can't remember yep. the day. Month, but. So, yeah. Um, yeah. At the time, it was it was the biggest um, prize check in, in world golf. Um, but besides that, it was was a match play head to head. Was that a really nice way to cap out two thousand and five by winning that tournament? Yeah, I mean, it was. I'll tell, I'll tell you a funny story behind that. Um, it's a Tuesday, right? So when the, I'm on the driving range, Sponge is there. I'm on the driving range, and my my coach Jonathan Yarwood rocks up. He's yep. walking very fast towards me. He's angry. <laughs> He's angry, right? I go, mate, what's wrong? It's, oh, look at this article. Somebody wrote in, in the article that um, there's only been three other players in the world that's won the World Match Play and the US Open the same year. That was Nicholas, uh, Uni Els, and I'm going to say Gary Player, maybe. Okay. Or, or, or Arnold Palmer. Anyway, there's only three guys have won the uh, US Open and the World Match Play in the same year. And basically, this guy's written me off saying, you know, which I agree with him. Uh, I'm not in the same league as those guys. No, not at all. Mm. So this article really read me up a lot. You know, I was, I was saying to myself, you know, if you, I can I can do this. So what I did, I, I put it, I put in my golf bag. Wow. Um, I, I knew I was going to win <laughs> because I had a, <laughs> Another game to play. I was determined to win. And I played some really, really good golf that week. A nice bunch. I mean, <laughs> the, phenomenal. And to the point where I didn't know how much I won. I didn't care. Really? All wanted, yeah, all I wanted <laughs> to be the fourth person to, to win uh, the US Open, the World Match Play in the same year. So even though you'd won the biggest prize in golf at the time, you didn't really care because your sole motivation was to prove that article wrong, suggesting that you weren't in the same league as those other three who had won the US Open and the match play in the same year. Yeah, I mean, and, and I said the sponge on the, on the, remember the sponge on the 17th and played Paul McGillian in the final. I said to sponge, how much did we win? <laughs> so I had no idea. <laughs> do you remember that sponge? I'd certainly do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, as a as a caddy, um, you know you don't normally count your chickens, but that um, final, I knew I knew what first prize was and what second prize was because there was only two left. So I remember Paul McGinley um, hit it left on sixteen, and it was hooking hooking towards the A thirty, and I was blowing that white sucker out onto the A thirty. Believe me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cambo, do you feel like your US, not only your US Open victory, but mainly that, but also that world match play victory and your 2005 season in general, did that have the effect on the not only New Zealand golf, but also the Maori community in New Zealand? Did it did it have the effect that you, you thought it would? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I think so. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it changed a lot of people's attitude towards golf. Um, it's, definitely, it's definitely grown over the years. Um, obviously, it's not just me. It's other players as well. Uh, with Ryan Fox now playing out there. Yeah. You know, also with um, Bob Charles winning the 63 Open. And then, obviously, it was Frank Nobolo and, and um, uh, Greg Turner. Yeah. And then Greg, you know. And so, you know, we had a bunch of guys out there. Um, but it's been a long time between drinks, you could say, between major wins, but my, my win and also uh, Bob Charles' win. And so we need, you know, more major winners from New Zealand out there to, to inspire young younger generation now because, I mean, I haven't been home for a long time, but um, the, again, the golf is definitely in a, in a good place. Mm. And it's nice that uh, I feel that I've got some sort of footprint in New Zealand uh, with golf. Absolutely, yeah. You, you've got a legacy, you know, just like Sir Bob Charles was the first New Zealander and also, fun fact, the first left-hander to win a major, but he was the first New Zealander to win a major. He has a legacy, but you have, you have a, a very unique legacy as well in that you're the first Maori to win a major championship from New Zealand. And and Steve Williams, obviously Tiger Woods is, was famous um, former caddy. He said to me on, on Series 1 of Chasing Majors that that you you winning the U.S. Open was perhaps the most important achievement in the history of New Zealand sport. Is that true? Is that accurate? And 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 why would it be one of the most special achievements in New Zealand sport? He's just being nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think because the reason why because it's, golf isn't a big sport in New Zealand. Yeah. Rugby, rugby league, you know, sailing. Uh, America's Cup, uh, cricket, and, and cricket as well. Yeah, absolute cricket. You know, number one in the world, number two in the world. Uh, the team, but uh, I can't. I don't. I don't really know the answer. Um, to be honest, why uh, he, he would say things like that, which is I, I, I totally understand where he's coming from. Mm. Uh, once again, you know, the, the Maori people don't play golf really, but they do now. So it's all, probably against all odds, really, that um, for me to win, win a major, um, coming from New Zealand and being a Maori was the reason why he said that, which is great. Uh, thanks, Steve, for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's truly a huge honour for me. And um, it's all about what I can do with it. And I've done my, my thing with uh, trying to promote um, golf in New Zealand and, and just trying to motivate young kids to... Go out and do it, man. Just dream. Dream big and do it. Yeah, Campbell, it's, it's almost, it, does it feel like what your grandmother taught you when you were 10 that, you know, one hand you receive and, and one hand you gave back? Do you feel like now that your career is transitioned into a senior career that you definitely received with one hand and that you gave back with the other? Yeah, yeah. That's why I started my own golf academy down here in Spain uh, for the last 10 years because this is my way. It's my platform to give back to the game that's given me so much. You know, teaching these young kids now, which I really enjoy. Um, it's all part of the whole bigger picture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I'll never forget, I had a conversation with Jack Nicholas. I know Jack quite well. And so we played the President's Cup. So I just won the World Match play. Yeah. The next day, we're flying to America. 
And every night's a big function, something's on. And it was a black tie function. It was a Tuesday night. And I see Jack over there because he's the, he, he was the captain of the uh, American team and Gary Player was our captain for the international team. Yeah. So coming over towards me, thinking, oh, what have I done here? He goes, looks me in the eye and says, Michael, well done. What you've done is incredible. What a shot. Beat Tiger was crying. He was like giving these amazing compliments, right? And all of a sudden, his, his, his body language changed and got really serious with me. He goes, Michael, now that you're a major winner, it's your responsibility to grow the game. And he walks away. <laughs> so, <laughs> that is, you know, it's a sign. So that's why I started the golf. So he planted that seed back in 2005 and, and had an opportunity to start my own golf academy about eight years ago. So yeah, a way of paying back, paying it what, forward. Get, tell us a little bit about the golf academy. Where, where is it in Spain and what's it called? And, and, you know, just give us the rundown. Well, it's basically um, it's attached to a, a golf course called Villa Patio, and it's called Michael Campbell Golf Academy. Yep. Uh, pretty boring name, I know. <laughs> um, um, it's uh, in the southern Spain in Marbella, uh, which is on the on the Mediterranean, the coast there. It's about thirty minutes drive from uh, from Valderrama. Okay. And yeah, I've been there for eight years now, nine years, and uh, I've really enjoyed passing out my knowledge and my information to these young kids and also everybody really. And um, it's, it's been fun. But now I'm getting pretty serious about playing on the seniors tour, winning more senior majors. It'll be fun. Well, that's right. Well, Cambo and Sponge, thanks for joining me on Series 2 of Chasing Majors. And um, like you just said, Cambo, best of luck at the Senior PGA Championship here in America next week. And we're all rooting for you. And, uh, and, and it was amazing to have you on the podcast and talk about your epic 2005 US Open victory. Thanks a lot. No problem, mate. It was fun. It was fun to share. I knew we do this by myself and nice to hear the different side of the story from, from Sponge. So it was, uh, it, was, it was fun recalling those memories. Mm-hmm.